Brian McClanahan Show, episode 376. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by clicking on that support tab at, at uh, brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You get your book plate. If you want my autograph of one of my books, I've got my new book, Southern Scribblings which I'm going to talk about in this particular podcast. If you want that, just go on out to Amazon. But you get a number of books that I've written. That one's the newest and the latest. You can also go to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll in that class, you're going to want to do it because you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You know about them first. And in this particular case, I've got a new class out right now. I've got another one coming out in about two weeks, right in time for Black Friday, and McClanahan Academy subscribers are going to get awesome deals on Black Friday. Pre-Black Friday, I should say. We're going to do Black Friday early, everybody else is, for McClanahan Academy. It's going to be awesome, and you're going to want to get your McClanahan Academy. You're going to get the last course in the series. You're going to want to get the best deals on these courses, so go out to McClanahan Academy, enroll free of charge, get the free class, be on the list, get with the cool kids. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, you should rate this podcast wherever you get podcasts, share it around on social media, let people know you like it, let people know you love it, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And that's what we need to do to create the revolution in America. And always, you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, another great website where I teach with Tom and all kinds of cool instructors as well. So... Lots of great ways to support the show. Get out there and do it. Let people know you like it. All right. I've been sent a couple of, I mean, I don't know how many times, these, uh, these articles at National Review. If you, have, if, if you don't read National Review, which I understand if you don't, and I try not to unless somebody sends me something from it, there is an ongoing dispute now between National Review and the American Conservative on uh, the influence of Calhoun, John C. Calhoun in American politics. And it's basically National Review. When I say it's National Review, it's not National Review. It's Cameron Hilditch. Now, Cameron Hilditch is a 12-year-old Straussian neocon from Ireland telling Americans what it means to be an American. I mean, he's older than 12, but he looks like he's 12 years old. And you can tell from what he says he hasn't really read a lot about Calhoun. He's only read Straussian neocon, Jaffaite material. He doesn't know anything. I mean, he says he's read the Disquisition on Government, which I find rather interesting because in Calhoun's Disquisition on Government, he never once mentions slavery. Never once. Never brings it up. Not one time. Now, if you took my Southern Cultural Intellectual History classes at McClanahan Academy, as a matter of fact, the second part of the series, I, I actually do a whole lecture on John C. Calhoun's Disquisition on Government because it is an important part of the Southern cultural intellectual tradition. But he never once mentioned slavery. And what Hilditch is 
I mean, he talks about the American conservative dying on the hill of Calhoun. What Hilditch is dying on the hill of is that Calhoun's entire political career was based on slavery. That's the only thing. And you know what? And I'm going to read a couple of his statements, and you can tell he doesn't know what he's talking about because of how he phrases things. He really doesn't know Calhoun. He might have read a book or two about Calhoun. Maybe he read a couple of speeches. Has he even read Calhoun's positive good speech in its entirety? Because if he had, he would not make one of the mistakes that he makes in it. You see, let me just say this about Calhoun's positive good speech. And there are a couple of excellent uh, articles on this at Abbeville Institute, both by Clyde Wilson, who might know a thing or two about Calhoun, considering that he was the editor of the John C. Calhoun papers for uh, nearly uh, 30 plus years, right? So he might know a thing or two about John C. Calhoun. And just so happens that I was Clyde Wilson's last doctoral student at the University of South Carolina. Now, I don't claim to know as much about Calhoun as, as Clyde Wilson at all, anywhere near it. But uh, when you work with Clyde, you get a heavy dose of John C. Calhoun. And I remember in Clyde's office, he had a sign on the wall, you know, Calhoun for Senate. And Clyde's position, which is the, which is the correct position on Calhoun, you say he is the, the intellectual godfather of the Confederacy. In no way was Calhoun ever that. Even by saying that, Hilditch, which he does, he says it, has no idea what he's talking about. Calhoun was a unionist. Calhoun was a unionist to the day he died. In fact, he always said that. His entire goal was preserving the union. The Confederacy was secession. Now, Calhoun warned that secession could happen. And he thought the South could partake in that activity should the Union abuse, or should I I should say the North, abuse the compact that formed the Union. Remember, this is the man who stood up as vice president and said, the Union, next to our liberties most dear. May we always remember it can only be preserved by distributing equally the benefits and burdens of the Union. In fact, what he's doing is threatening disunion, not because he wants it, but because he understands that if, that if the compact is broken, there are Southerners who would leave it. There was a Elizabeth Varon, who was a horrible historian. Horrible. When I say horrible, her entire narrative is the South is racist and bad and needs to be done away with, the Old South. But at least she wrote, she wrote a, a, an interesting book about the power of the language of disunion and how important that actually is and was to Americans. If you go back to the early Federal Republic and you talk about uh, you know, look at this word disunion. I mean, even the whole idea of, of, of drafting and then ratifying the Constitution was based on a fear of losing the Union. We're going to have disunion. If we don't do this, we're going to have this thing break apart. They all recognize it could happen. And as soon as the thing's ratified, within five years, the North is talking about getting out of the thing. I mean, this is, this is Ellsworth uh, and King cornering John Taylor of Caroline in the cloakroom in the Senate saying, hey, John, look, this thing's not working. What do you think about the North leaving the Union? 1794 that happened. 1794. And, of course, the North persisted in this rhetoric all the way into the 1840s for a variety of reasons. Some of them were abolitionists. Some of them were just people they were just ticked off. They weren't getting their way, and they wanted out. 
The North was the first section to talk about disunion. You want to talk about the intellectual godfathers of the Confederacy? Go look at the Essex Junto in New, in, uh, New England. Those are the intellectual godfathers of secession in the Confederacy, if you really want to talk about this. right? Now, of course, Southerners talked about secession too, but John Taylor of Caroline was shocked, shocked about this. Now, let me get into a couple things that Hilditch says in a couple of recent pieces. Um, and he doesn't, the funniest part of some of this, the funniest part of some of this is that he can't attack the one piece except on something that he knows, obviously knows very little about. And that is the history of pro-slavery ideology in the United States. So what happened was Hilditch published this stupid article saying that Calhoun was a Jacobite, essentially, that he's un-American, that, uh, you know, and it, and it started because of a piece published by Hunter Dorensis, uh, which was actually good. And um, Hunter Dorensis, I'll, I'll have to add, follows me and has listened to me talk about uh, the concurrent majority quite a bit. And so if he says anything about the concurrent majority, in some ways, he's getting some of that probably from me. Now, I mean, he, I'm sure he's thinking on his own, too, and doing his own research and everything else, but he's, he's certainly in line with some things that are going on. So he actually contacted me and said, hey, can you, can you help me out with this? And I said, look, write, write your response yourself and um, you know, go at it. Uh, but because this is dragged on now, I have to, I have to say... Uh, I have to say something about this because Hilditch is just completely stupid. And the hubris in Hilditch is just so funny. First of all, the guy's an Irishman, remember. He's an Irishman. Now imagine an American going to Ireland and saying, you know, you Irishmen need to learn your own history and this is what you need to think about it. Right? This is what he's doing. But first of all, here's what he says. And so what happened is DeBrensis wrote an article, Hilditch responded, and then Two, uh, one friend of mine and then another man who is... Uh, both have written great books on John C. Calhoun, by the way. John Grove and Lee Cheek responded. Now, Hilditch... Hilditch can't really respond to that one um, in kind because he can't confront their arguments and win. He knows that he was taken to task and that he actually lost the argument. But he focuses on one interesting part, and again, here he loses as well. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but he said this, I'm increasingly convinced that the American conservatives should consider a name change. A few weeks ago, they published a historically illiterate article. No, no, it was historically literate. It was a good article by Hunter Dorensis. The one who's historically illiterate is Cameron Hilditch. The man doesn't know, or the, the boy doesn't know very much American history. In praise of John C. Calhoun, the, intell the intellectual progenitor of the Confederacy. In no way was, the in was he the intellectual progenitor of the Confederacy. In no way. In no way. Because Calhoun was always about preserving the Union. Remember, when Calhoun was around, the Union was preserved over and over and over again. Because he made his point, if you don't do these things, the South will secede. So what did they do? He worked 
to compromise. This is the same John C. Calhoun that when the War of 1812 was over, threw a bone to the North in a higher tariff because he understood that there was disunion sentiment in the North. This is the same John C. Calhoun that voted for the admission of Michigan as a state and understood that the people there could determine their own destiny in that state. The same John C. Calhoun that was always interested in the compact nature of the government and the benefits of the Union. He understood it all. He never wanted the South to secede, ever. To his dying day, he said that. He's not the intellectual progenitor of the Confederacy. In no way is he that. So this is where Hilditch shows that he's a complete moron. Then he says this, which I, I laughed out loud. After I corrected the many errors of that particular piece. No, you didn't. You didn't correct anything. In fact, you looked like an idiot when you tried. You looked like the little dimwit that he is. That he is. I mean, he is. He doesn't know anything. He looked like anybody that knows Calhoun... Anybody that's read Calhoun and understands Calhoun looked at that piece and said, this guy, it's like, it's like reading an undergraduate essay on John C. Calhoun. This is exactly what it was. An undergraduate essay from somebody who doesn't know anything about John C. Calhoun. That's all. So we get these things, or a dime a dozen, from people that don't have degrees yet, that don't know much, and try to talk about John C. Calhoun. They decided that Calhoun's reputation is like Little Round Top, a hill worth dying on. They published a repost to my essay in which the authors argued that Calhoun offered only a moderate defense of slavery that was thoroughly mainstream for his day and that he should be understood as a source of moderation amid seas of extremism. Of course, if this were even remotely true, Calhoun's reputation as the father of positive good theory of slavery would be quite difficult to explain. It's not difficult to explain because dippies like you, and I'm not going to use language, dippies like you don't know the historiography. They don't know anything. Calhoun is not the father of the positive good theory of slavery. And I'm going to read to you the definitive, the definitive study of pro-slavery ideology in America that's assigned at least it used to be, to most graduate students, as you go and you get an advanced degree in history, to read about pro-slavery ideology. And if you ever read this book, you could never make a statement like that. You could never make a statement like that, if you ever read this. So this is the book, Pro-Slavery, by Larry Ties, A History of the Defense of Slavery in America, 1701 to 1840. Now, the, the, the dates are curious. See, Calhoun made the positive good speech in 1837, that's almost 1840. Well, what's going on here? If he says, wait a second, in 1701. You see, if you believe this position, that Calhoun is the father of the positive good theory of slavery, if you believe that, it's not difficult to explain because a bunch of dippies, again, that don't know anything have been running around. And it's all based on a 1935 book before this, which was the book, which was completely incorrect. So I want to read where he goes through four myths. I'm sorry, five myths. Excuse me, five myths about pro-slavery ideology in America. He says, among the myths, and this is Larry Ties, among the myths in need of examination are assumptions that pro-slavery arguments in the United States sprang forth from the Old South in the 19th century in a, in a novel character for both slaveholders and Americans. This is what Hilditch is saying. This sprang forth. Calhoun 
sprang forth. Larry Tice says, hey, look, I've read all the stuff. That's a myth. Why is it a myth? Because an examination of American pro-slavery literature from 1701 until the 19th century will suggest that Americans had a rich and telling pro-slavery history throughout the, their colonial and revolutionary years prior to the emergence of the Old South. Oops. Oh, well, I guess Hildrich was wrong about that one. In fact, the first pro-slavery ideology, first pro-slavery treatise written in America was written in 1701 by a man named John Saffin of Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Which reads a lot like what Calhoun said about slavery. Not much difference, in fact. Myth two. The second myth is that Americans were bereft of any who defended slavery during the early years of the 19th century. During those years, colonizers and emancipators were busy at work forming societies to rid the nation of both slavery and the Negro, and most slaveholders, out of conscience, felt relatively comfortable with their efforts. Any analysis of the period will indicate that pro-slavery sentiments were present in a multiplicity of national concerns, wherever people talked about the nature and future of shape of American society. Throughout the period, most of the, of the defending of slavery was left to social critics far removed from the scene of slaveholding. So, uh, again, there's a lot of pro-slavery ideology running around. This is where, when, when Cheek and Grove said that this was you know, a mild... I mean, you got much more ardent pro-slavery ideologues in the North. In fact, the, the most vicious of them were Northern theologians. And lo and behold, John C. Calhoun goes to Yale, where he's taught by Timothy Dwight, who just happens to be a pro-slavery ideologue. You see? Now, we can say there's degrees of this. What Calhoun said in the positive good speech, by the way, is that, look, if slavery is an evil, and all, he, was, he was actually addressing this to other slaveholders in the, in the Congress. If slavery is an evil, then we should get rid of it right now. Right now. If it's an evil, as you all are standing up here saying, we should get rid of it right now. It should not even be a question. But nobody's talking about that. Nobody's saying we got to get rid of it. So, are we, and you Northerners are benefiting from it. You Southerners are benefiting from it. So what is it really? And Calhoun did not say that he believed it was necessarily. He did say it's a good, it's a positive good. But there was also a point when he, there was an aside that's not really written down where he talked, there was some conversation and Calhoun essentially says that, yeah, I mean, we could get rid of this thing. But the fact is he's tweaking other Southerners there. And Clyde Wilson brings that up in his essay on the positive good. Calhoun didn't come up with this. This had been circulating around America at that point for over 100 years, which is why Lee Cheek and John Grove say it's a moderate defense of the institution and a mainstream thought for his day. There were many other people that already thought this. Calhoun was just articulating it. A third myth for examination is the notion that pro-slavery arguments in the Old South were somehow different, more heinous, and distinct from the pro-slavery convictions of slaveholders in other societies. An analysis of pro-slavery literature in Britain and the West Indies prior to the heyday of the Old South will suggest that the pro-slavery argument for, or rather arguments, were virtually the same wherever one found slaveholding on the defensive. Again, Calhoun wasn't novel or unique. 
Calhoun's pro-slavery language was the least interesting part of his entire political career, and not only the, not even the most important part in any way of his entire political career. This is where Hilditch is a complete idiot. Another myth is the belief that Southerners rally around a notion that slavery was a positive good both for master and slave, and such a perspective made the Old South unique among slaveholding societies. A close examination of the thesis and a pertinent related literature from other periods in other lands will suggest that the thesis is without basis in fact. Let me read that again. Another myth is the belief that Southerners rallied around a notion that slavery was a positive good both for master and slave, and as such, and such a perspective made the Old South unique among slaveholding societies. And he says, not unique, you find it all over the world. A final myth that must be torn away for a a proper understanding of pro-slavery history in the United States relates to who defended slavery. The popular notion is that pro-slavery was a pursuit unique to Southern slaveholding Americans, a composite biographical study of nearly 300 individuals who published defenses of slavery in the United States, suggests that the pursuit was, was almost without geographical distinction. The same study reveals a number of other factors that provide the basis for a totally new understanding of America's pro-slavery history. So Calhoun was nowhere near the father of, of the positive good theory. It's not difficult to explain. Just read a book, Hilditch. In fact, read this book. And I think you would turn around and say, oh, yep, I'm a dummy. I need to retract everything I've just said here. Given the enormous misunderstandings around the history of pro-slavery in the United States, the debunking of popular myths on the subject must be viewed as a cleansing process that will enable both historians and their publics to begin to look squarely and intelligently at one of the most troubling facets of the nation's history. As painful and tedious as the process may seem, the end result will be a clear glimpse at the essence and nature of American society and its fascinating course of development. So Ties, I mean, Ties is um, certainly... uh, he is pointing out this reprehensible belief in slavery as a positive good did not come from John C. Calhoun at all. Now, he even brings up Jefferson, uh, that Jefferson called it a hideous blot. But Jefferson, for a man that was so anti-slavery, Jefferson had some pretty nasty things to say about slaves and pretty pro-slavery things to say about slavery. In fact, in his Notes on the State of Virginia, which I also cover in one of my Southern Cultural and Intellectual, my, the, the first, in fact, of the Southern Cultural and Intellectual History courses, part one. And so this is where one part where Hilditch is just an idiot. And then he says, of course, Calhoun is Hitler, which is, I mean, look, this is the Jaffaites. These people can't even get out of their own way. They're so stupid half the time. So here you go. And now another thing he said that was just hilarious to me. It isn't another one where he, another piece uh, that was uh, pointing out um, some kind of some Calhoun-esque things. But he says, look, uh, there was a there was an argument made in uh, the American conservative that uh, Lee was actually more humane than Abraham Lincoln. And Calhoun, uh, uh, Hilditch, I'm sorry, says, this is absurd. This is absurd. 
that Lee was more humane than Lincoln. That Lincoln was less woke. I mean, you've just now attacked St. Abraham. And since you've attacked St. Abraham, this is the hill that the neocon, Straussian, Jaffaites will go to die on. You just attacked our saint. We got to just rally around this. So I'm going to read this part, and then I'm going to point to something that I've already done with this. He says, this is absurd. This is Hilditch. As the civil war historian Alan Gelzo showed in an excellent recent piece for National Review, the notion that General Lee was more humane or admirable than President Lincoln is for the birds. Gelzo chronicles one incident in particular that demonstrates this to a chilling and salient extent. It happened in the spring of 1859 when Lee and his late fa- had his late father-in-law's freed slaves recaptured and tortured for presuming upon their own liberty. Now, let me tell you where this comes from. Uh, there was a book, which I've already covered. If you go back and you look me up, Misreading the Man. Just look up my YouTube channel, Misreading the Man. I also have the podcast for it, too. And then you go and look up, if you get my book, right, get, and there's a chapter in there, Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians. I, I, I did all of this in that particular chapter. This is based on, an, on a book by Pryor, Reading the Man, where she gets into this as uh, she takes apart this, in detail, this particular event, which supposedly Lee had his slaves whipped and tortured and poured brine in their wounds. There's one account of it. And even Douglas Southall Freeman talked about this. And he concluded, you can't really find any evidence here. There's one account of it. The person that said it, it was filtered through abolitionist literature. And uh, as a result, um, that, ha- that oftentimes distorted the meaning. And then, not only that, there was no scars on these individuals. For something so heinous. I mean, if this person was whipped and poured brine in their wounds, there's no evidence. Even Pryor says, ah, I mean, it's hard. You know, it could be true. It may not be true. The entire book, this entire piece, then was produced in The Atlantic, The Myth of the Kindly General Lee. The Atlantic. Cameron Hilditch and Alan Gelzo are supporting The Atlantic. That's American conservatism today, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just regurgitate the stupidity of the left-leaning Atlantic. Not even left-leaning Atlantic. The rabidly progressive socialist Atlantic as the real basis for American conservatism. This is why Lee Cheek... And John Grove called Cameron Hilditch a Jacobite. Because that's what he is. Cameron Hilditch is an old leftist masquerading as a conservative. And he has no idea what he's talking about. You want to talk about a leftist? That's what he is. There's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of this except hearsay and somebody talking about it. Even... This was brought up at one point after the war was over. And it was also uh, you know, published in newspapers. And, but Lee, said, Lee remarked that this is a miserable legacy. Now, I've already addressed this in that, in that other piece, so I don't want to do a whole podcast on it. But it just shows you, it just shows you um, how stupid these Straussian neocons really are. And Hilditch has a lot of learning 
and a lot of growing up to do when it comes to understanding American conservatism. Maybe it's because he's Irish and he never will. But this piece and everything he's done is just downright awful recently. And I think that if you want to read the best piece, go out to the American conservative and I'm uh, and and look for um, the piece by Lee Cheek and John Grove. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it up here just so I have the title of the piece. Um, so we have that here. It is The Eternal Inside of John C. Calhoun, published on October 19th. And um, first of all, both Cheek and Grove have written great books on Calhoun. Cameron Hildrich has written nothing on John C. Calhoun. Nothing. Cameron Hildrich hasn't even written really anything at all, except a bunch of garbage in National Review. That's what Cameron Hildrich is. And again, he's about 12 years old. But supposedly, this is a great mind of conservatism in America. So, anyways. This is uh, to uh, you know address this thing, which I know people have asked me about. So here you go. I talked about it. And uh, sorry I haven't had more than two podcasts this week. I've had, again, the last couple of weeks have been kind of crazy with some things. And so uh, getting this late today, we had, of course, the hurricane come through and power was out. And then we had, uh, you know, internet issues. So I got it late today, but I'll have an Abbeville podcast again this week. Um, so we get three and then hopefully next week I can get back on a regular uh, schedule and get some more podcasts going. But anyways, thanks for joining. i um, glad you tuned in for this one and I'll see you next time at the Brian McClanahan show. See you then.